Hi, friends. Welcome to season two of Bar of the Conference. I'm your host, Derek Scott III. Today's episode is with Molly Vetter. Molly is an elder in the California Pacific Annual Conference and serves as senior pastor of the Westwood United Methodist Church in Los Angeles. She's a lifelong United Methodist, raised by preachers, and has been a delegate to several general conferences. Y'all, Molly is a force. When Molly is in the room, she reminds us all of our gospel commitment to love, grace, justice, and inclusion. She's a gift to the UMC, and I was so grateful she was willing to join me on the podcast. In our conversation, we talk about her upbringing as the daughter of a United Methodist pastor, her journey in exploring her call to ministry, and her thoughts on how our denomination has been held captive by our disagreements around human sexuality. This is the kind of episode Bar of the Conference was created for. It is so good and so helpful as we think about General Conference 24 and who we could be as United Methodists. So as I always say, grab that notebook, that choice beverage, and let's listen to this really great interview with Molly Vetter. Reverend Molly Vetter, how are you doing today? I'm great. How are you? I'm doing okay. Really excited to have you on the podcast. And um, I'm grateful for your friendship and your leadership. You're, you, Molly, you I are... I feel the same. I feel oh, the same. Oh, man. You have one of those voices, I think. Um, uh, you're just one of the folks in the UMC, at least for me, who, who are literally pointing the way. I mean, you are just pointing the way forward in so many different aspects and contexts for our church. And so I'm just grateful for you. Um, but on the podcast here, I always like to start as close to the beginning as possible. So I'd love to hear um, how you became a United Methodist Christian, Christian, how God's prevenient grace acted in your life to bring you into our church. Oh, well, that goes, it goes to the way back, the beginning. I was born a United Methodist, and I am the daughter of a now retired United Methodist pastor and the granddaughter of a United Methodist pastor who comes from the EUB tradition. He was a superintendent in the Dakotas at the time of the merger. Uh, so in 1968, when the United Methodist Church was formed, at that general conference, a new United Methodist Church in Grand Island, Nebraska, was chartered as the first United Methodist Church anywhere. And that's the church that I was raised in. That's I was there cool. from kindergarten through eighth grade. It's where I was confirmed. It was a newish church, so started in 68, um, that was out on the edge, the suburban edge of Grand Island, Nebraska, where mostly young families lived. So it was a church of a lot of my classmates. It was a lot of priority on kids ministry and youth ministry. It was a really fun church to grow up in where I always felt like I belonged. And in part because it was the thing my family did with my dad being pastor, it was just a place where I was welcomed to use creativity and involvement, expected to play a part in things, but in a creative and thoughtful way. 
I recognize that's not everyone's experience growing up as a kid in church, but it was certainly mine. And it was in youth leadership in the Nebraska, con- the then Nebraska conference that I found excuses to do a lot of travel and explore the world on our conference youth uh, programming and connection with camps and things. So I really came to understand my orientation to the world through the lens of involvement in churches uh, that was pretty formative. I should also say I was deeply formed by my grandparents on the other side. My grandpa was a very stubborn organic farmer from the 1950s, choosing that commitment because of his connection to between our treatment of the earth as God's creation and our faith as Methodists. Um, And so that sense of like doing the right thing or choosing to live differently in the world because of deep commitments of your values and faith was definitely a part of how I was formed an expectation that it would be a distinctive like marker in how one should live, how I should participate in communities that sometimes would be out of sync with the community around and sometimes in sync um, with the world around, but that that should be a like, ballast or guide or a measure of how to live in the world. I just, as someone who didn't grow up United Methodist or in the Methodist tradition, Wesleyan tradition, um, I, I'm always a little bit jealous <laughs> of the folks right? who did. Um, and I'm curious, this is kind of jumping way too forward, but I having such a, a rich, environment, rich Methodist environment to grow up in, does that impact the way that you lead now as a clergy person? I mean, I can't, I can't know like how much it impacts me because I don't know how to like how I would, but I think it has to, there's so much of the way we do things as Methodists that just feels instinctive to me in part Mm -hmm. because it's so knit into the ways that I was raised that like emphasis on grace is just so foundational to my understanding of how to live in the world, the commitment to that social holiness alongside personal holiness, so deep and real. And my appreciation for uh, like knowing that I belong and knowing that belonging means always making space for others. Like that's been such a deep and huge part of church for me. It was like in the church that I mean, the like high school summer camp that I participated in was intentional about including adult leaders with disabilities. Uh, it was like in church that I experienced what community community could look like that was inclusive. Uh, it's a place where I encountered more racial diversity than I was familiar with in my home church. It's a place where I like was always expanding my sense of um, people in whom God was at work and with that expectation of belonging. I had queer clergy who were important in my faith when I was like in high school. And I would like, mm. I was aware of that, even though they were closeted in the, the conference. Uh, so I, like, I don't know a time before. So I grew up with, I mean, as the like preacher's kid in Nebraska conference, I was all, like my family was always on the liberal edge of local politics. Mm-hmm. Uh, it was mm-hmm. a much more conservative context, certainly than what I live in here in Los Angeles today. But one that 
I also felt like I belonged in. So I felt like loved and included, even though I was out of sync with some of the like political politics Mm -hmm. of the community around. And it was like in the church that that exploration most frequently happened, like caring about the environment and caring about inclusion. And even I was in high school when the United Methodist Church came out with a study guide for local churches called the Church Studies Homosexuality in 1994. And my local church in Western Nebraska did that study together. It was like in church that these discussions Mm. were happening and was, you know, appreciative of the church as a context for engagement across diversity of understanding. Um, But I was raised by a family where my my parents made the had to reject the homophobic theology that they were taught and that happened before I was aware of what was going on so I was raised in a family that it was always expected that because of our theological commitments we would be working to dismantle oppressive systems in the church that exclude people based on their sexuality and it never felt at all out of sync with the gospel that I was learning about, it always felt like it belonged. So I I know that that's also not the case for everyone, that often we still have work to do to dismantle the connection between our expectation of holding onto this homophobic theology and, you know, our faithful belonging in the church. But I mean, there was certainly like, there was homophobia in, I don't mean to like act like my churches were not homophobic, but it was certainly a like, grounding expectation for my belief that I was comfortable holding on to, even in the midst of people who believe otherwise and never saw out of sync with the gospel. Well, and I was going to ask if you felt like growing up, you had theological alignment within the congregations that you found yourself in over the years, even at a young age. Um, But I actually think that your story is not that different from most United Methodists prior to 2016, if not prior to 2012. um, Because I think many of us, even me as a, as a, you only been in in United Methodism for 20 years, which seems like a lot when you say it out loud, (laughs) but in comparison to my colleagues. Yeah, really long years, (laughs) but, I think that all of us found ourselves in congregations um, and definitely in conferences where we knew that we were not of the same mind about all of the things. And I think up until the recent season that we've been in, um, we seem to be able to navigate that. And it, I do wonder if maybe some of that is that we didn't navigate it. And so that's how we navigated it. Like we didn't bring up contentious issues too much. We didn't, um, I mean, we still have congregations that will not talk about exactly why they're disaffiliating, right? <laughs> so I, I guess that I, I wonder if your story actually matches many United Methodists. Um, yeah, and in some ways, the thing that's changed in the denomination since in over these last 20 years is that we have made ever tighter rules in our book of discipline that explicitly forbid ministry with gay folks mm-hmm. and forbid ordination of same gender loving partnered people. So mm-hmm. 
it's like we have intentionally added into our book of discipline explicit rules that eliminate the space that used to exist that in some ways like allowed us to hold together across diversities and differences of opinion or differences of belief. We've chosen to say like, this is not a difference that we can tolerate. Mm. And, and it's the side of like, we've said we can't tolerate conferences that recognize the call of the Holy Spirit in people because of their sexuality. And we cannot Mm -hmm. tolerate clergy that will bless same gender weddings. That's the piece we said we have no room for. So like to some extent, like that's a shift that has also happened is that the church has prioritized exclusion. Wow. So spot on. Now that I've taken us way fast forward, let's go back. <laughs> let's go back. Rewind. So you're growing up in Nebraska, uh, coming of age in United Methodist spaces. And at some point you discern a call to ministry. Well, so I was always one of those preacher's kids that like, uh, I don't, this is going to sound crass, but I like looked at what my dad said and I thought, well, I could do that. But that seemed like a really disingenuous way to become a clergy person. So I did not talk about a sense of call to ministry at all until after I went away to college. Mm. And that going away to college was a period of time in my life where for the first time I had to proactively choose involvement in church, as opposed to it being the thing that my family did that was sort of knit into the fabric of our like household's life. And so you know, in college, it's like differently difficult to get out of bed on Sunday morning and go to worship. Say that. Yes, it is. And, you know, it was like differently difficult to like own my faith. So I went to Boston University and suddenly was in the midst of a much more diverse community than I'd ever experienced where like going to church on Sunday was not in any way the ordinary thing to do. So it was really an occasion for me to recognize how important that was to me and begin to make sense of what I felt like were were gifts that I have to use in life and how they made sense in the work of the church. So it was somewhere in my like sophomore year that I started really recognizing a sense of calling to ministry. So t- keep taking me down that road. All right. So I I was an art history major in college, and I really imagined myself working in an art museum in a big city. And I applied for a really amazing internship in New York City that was super rare for like rising juniors. And they like accepted six people or something to this killer internship. So I got my rejection letter on the same day that I got a phone call out of the blue from a pastor who I knew back in Nebraska, who was looking for someone to come work in his church for the summer in rural Nebraska. And I decided this would be like the right way to test my call, because if this was in fact something that felt right, Mm -hmm. it would not be because I was seduced by the cosmopolitan scene in Madison, Nebraska. (laughs) It would be because God is working it somehow. So I went and worked that summer in a little Methodist church in Madison, Nebraska. Now, let me, let me just ask this. Do do you consider yourself a city person, like a city person over a more country or rural person? Like, is that? 
a you part know, of sort of your personality? It's so difficult because in Nebraska, I always lived inside city limits, which makes me a city kid mm -hmm. because I live in town, not in the country. But now I live in Los Angeles and that's like an irrelevant <laughs> distinction. And like no one even knows what that means. And because I like have roots and connections to a farm in small town Nebraska, like that makes me the like super country folk. So I guess it's all like, it's all perspective. But now I live like a block from high rises in the busy part of LA. So I guess I've become cityified. Wow. But that summer was good in rural Nebraska. I really liked my work in the church and it felt like a place where I had gifts that made sense mm -hmm. and I was welcomed and it was just easy to imagine having a role in leadership. So that was kind of a turning point for me. My first Sunday there, I drove up to from my parents' house to this town. And then as I turned around to come home, there was literally a rainbow in the sky. And it was just felt like I'm not a person whose life has tended to be marked by mystical signs and wonders, but it was a beautiful affirmation for me that day that I was on the a good track on a pathway that felt right. And you still had not really articulated a a, a verbal call to ministry at this point? That's so interesting. I I can't exactly remember. I definitely was not in the candidacy process at that mm -hmm. point. I, I have a memory of the first time that I told my parents that I had a sense of call to ministry. And I remember like not wanting to say that too soon because it's really hard to say to your like preacher dad that you felt called to ministry and the next week be like, you know, never mind. That wasn't... <laughs> <laughs> like, yeah. you can't, it's hard to hold it like tentatively. Uh, so I remember doing that and they had their most generous response. They said, my folks both said to me, you know, that's something that we've for a long time thought would be good for you, but we wanted that to be your decision, not, not ours. So yeah. it wasn't ever something that they put on me, but that they affirmed very quickly, which I was certainly relieved and grateful to hear. Yeah. Were there other people um, along your journey that kind of inspired you to say yes to this call? I mean, obviously your dad um, in front of you, but were there others? Oh, so many, so many. And I can't imagine my sense of calling without thinking about them. When I was in high school, the church where my dad was appointed was reckoning with some very real and horrible sexual abuse that happened with a predecessor clergy person. And there are two women who courageously told their story. And even in the midst of a lot of institutional failure to offer redemptive work, found ways to participate in redemptive work. And it was through like, the county prosecutor that any amount of justice came, but the courage they had in doing that uh, was inspiring to me. And the capacity that the church has, even in the midst of institutional reluctance to, as a human community, be a context that is working toward healing and redemption was powerful to me. And both of those women not only remained in the church, but one became a pastor and the other continued as a lifelong lay staff person. Uh, so I often think of them uh, and am grateful for their faithfulness and witness 
And on days when I feel discouraged with the institution and its slowness and its many failures and awareness of how it sometimes is a context for perpetuating harm, I think of them and their courage in continuing to serve in this church that's both got an institutional reality that does not always do the right thing, sometimes even like wants to do the wrong thing, mm -hmm. uh, mm -hmm. that also has something that's so real and so true that it would warrant their continued involvement in it on the other side of such destructive violence that happened because of unhealthy power and abuse in the church. Uh, so th those two courageous women are definitely inspiration mm -hmm. to me. And I had a mentor mm -hmm. who was on the conference staff, uh, her name was Nancy, who just checked in with me periodically at always, she always just knew the right time to call when I was in college, when I was in seminary, she like knew when to reach out to me and she was uh, dying. She had cancer and going to visit her always felt like I left having been blessed and affirmed in a powerful way. Um, like I would think I, it was important like to be kind to her to go and visit. And then it would end up just being such tremendous gift. Those kinds of like people who chose to be connected to me and to reach out and to encourage and support me uh, have meant a lot to me over the years. So beautiful. So you've done this this summer at this West Nebraska it was rural. Eastern Nebraska, but Eastern very Nebraska. Rural. Eastern Nebraska, my bad. No, no offense. Yeah, it's to important Western to get your Nebraska geography correct. No offense. No offense. <laughs> I'm gonna get all the emails. Um you're you're serving, you serve this summer in Eastern Nebraska congregation. Um and go back to Boston University. Yeah, I had two more years at BU. I did I came back and worked summers in my home church in Lincoln, Nebraska. Mm -hmm. Uh, during those years, I then went directly to seminary after that. And because I was like 21 and looking for seminaries, I was really looking for a, a seminary community that could be a home for me where there would be a like campus life that would be a place of belonging. And I was also looking at seminaries and places I might want to live if I chose not to go back to Nebraska. So I uh, looked at a bunch of schools, but ended up coming out here to California to go to Claremont School of Theology. So was Claremont the space where your call really was solidified or did you go through any crisis moments as some of our seminarians do? Um, how was that experience for you? I loved Claremont. It was like, I finally found people that were using fancy language to articulate the thing that I felt <laughs> like I knew all along. Yeah, it was, yeah. It was amazing. I My senior year in college, I studied abroad in Niger in West Africa. And that was the first time I was ever obviously a minority and outsider in a place. It's a predominantly Muslim country. Obviously as a white person, I was, I stuck out in the like community. It's a Francophone country. So even my like colonial language skills were not spectacular. Uh, that And that semester, that was the fall of my senior year, was maybe when I, like most 
confirmed and affirmed my sense of call to ordain ministry in the United Methodist Church. Prior to that time, I think I had a hope that I could like go out into the world to do something that would be life-giving and and holy. And I realized that I had, there's so many layers of complexity to knowing how to live well in a culture that's really far from your own. I would try to like do things that I felt would be helpful, but there were, it was just hard to know that what I was saying was being received in a way that was actually what I meant to communicate and how Mm -hmm. I was behaving was being received in a way that spoke to my values. So I found it ultimately like frustrating, I guess, uh, and gave me a sense that my call would be closer to home in a, with like humility, acknowledging that there's like way too much to figure out that I don't know or understand to think about just like transplanting myself to a really different place. Uh, so that solidified my sense of call to ordain ministry and that serving in the U.S. would be sort of where I belonged. So then I went to Claremont. My first semester, I had four women faculty members, and each of them possessed like power and authority and conveyed her authority in a different particular way. Like there wasn't, I mean, prior to that time when I looked at women in leadership, they typically tried to lead in a way that looked kind of like men lead, you know, like literally wear Mm -hmm. the like power Mm -hmm. suit and show up and like do it as well as better than a man Mm -hmm. would. But suddenly there were women in leadership who were doing it their own unique, bold way, maybe Mm. grandmotherly spirit or with a sort of no nonsense approach. Like they were, there wasn't one way to be a woman in leadership. And that was a huge gift to me that I discovered there in my first semester. And I loved my time at Claremont. I lived on campus for all three years and it just felt like a really, uh, life-giving place. The process theology felt like suddenly I have a system to that can make sense of the complexity of life in this world that doesn't feel oppressive or like I have to check my brain or accept things that are um, problematic. And it, you know, continued to broaden and deepen my sense of commitment to the world, to living mm. faithfully in it. So, yeah, I'm a big fan. Um, uh, so now Claremont's coming to my campus here at Westwood. They're, they're relocating to uh, the church building of the congregation I currently serve. And I'm thrilled my seminary is like now coming to me. I get to live at seminary again. Very uh, excited. Such full circle stuff there. Molly, you and I um, are often in the same Zoom room and uh, sometimes even find ourselves in the same in-person room, which is That's always a treat, always a treat. Not often enough. And we were together, agreed, agreed. We were together a couple of weeks ago and you told me this story and I can't recall if it was a story that was during your time in seminary or candidacy, but you told me this story about a camp and I, I have I literally spent 20 minutes talking to you about your story <laughs> after you told me. And I just, I, I, I'd love, it's, I feel like it was a part of what what has helped shape you as a pastor. I may be putting words in your mouth, so feel free to. Oh, for know. sure. My last year in seminary, 
I had known about this retreat, the United Methodist Church sponsors for adults living with HIV AIDS. I'd known about it, had some friends who were involved. The retreat's called Strength for the Journey. And here in CalPAC, we have at times had several different camps, one in like Long Beach, Orange County, a Los Angeles one, a San Diego one. Some dear friends of mine were involved in the Long Beach, George County one. And so my senior year in my senior year, my last year of seminary, mm. I uh, volunteered to be on staff there. This was right as I was graduating and getting appointed. It was in that summer of transition. So I spent a week at Strength for the Journey retreat in this community of about 100 adults living with HIV, uh, mostly gay men, but also inclusive of women. Because I was in volunteer at Orange County camp, when I was appointed to San Diego, it turned out that the Methodist pastor who had been volunteering to help provide a leadership role at the San Diego camp had retired and they were in need of a spiritual leader for this camp for adults with HIV AIDS. And so I was 24 and they were like, oh, Molly, you've done this before. Why don't you come be the spiritual leader for this camp? And I was in way over my head like super aware that I did not have confidence that I was coming in as an expert to lead in this particular circumstance, but with a deep commitment that it was an important thing that the church was doing to help sponsor this camp and make it happen. Thankfully, there was incredible leadership from the camp community, including participants who become leaders and helped organize things so I could come alongside them. I heard about this other pastor who I did not know. I had like seen him on stage at annual conference. I heard that he was interested also, and he was living way out in the desert uh, east of San Diego. And so I phoned him and said, hey, I heard a rumor that you're interested in Strength for the Journey. Will you come? So the two of us got to be the clergy liaisons for mm. that camp that year. This was in 2001, which is my first year that I was appointed. And we were literally at the camp over September 11th. And that was... A, a powerful experience to go through a national, a tragedy of national and international importance in this community that's so precious and um, fleeting. I remember just feeling like I had no ability to navigate, like on my own wisdom these important questions of how much to pay attention to what was going on, whether it, you know, we could responsibly ignore this wild event for the sake of doing the thing that can only happen at strength for the journey. It's such a, I mean, it's a sort of parable of how so much of life happens that you're dealing with your particular thing and you have to figure out how, how it's impacted and involved with what's going on in a, a bigger world. But for me that, so I remained involved for a bunch of years after that also. The San Diego camp included folks who crossed the border from Mexico in order to get services for HIV. So it was in many years a bilingual camp and we would translate everything between English and Spanish to involve the whole of the community. The It was such a gift to have that as a part of my ministry in my first years as a pastor in my mid-20s, it helped me understand really important things about how to be the church. There are so many ways that 
we had to hold lightly the traditions of our United Methodist way of doing things because mm. the institutional church had been a source of like trauma and rejection and exclusion. So how do you offer the the resources, the gifts, the blessings of church without doing in it, it in a sort of heavy-handed way that draws up these real experiences of trauma past. So we were very expansive in our ways of naming the divine and welcoming to different ways of thinking and doing things. But there were also moments over the years that I was involved where it was clear to me that while I don't want to invite people to church under the expectation that like, if you come to our church, then we'll allow this community to exist for you or we'll love you so that you'll come to our church. There were also times where not inviting people to the church was communicating a dangerous idea that like, well, we'll come work with you people with HIV as long as we're at this other space, but we're not really interested in you coming to our church, which is very nicely situated. Thank you. Like you just stay in your like, places designated for HIV mm -hmm. ministry. Mm -hmm. uh, and, you know, then it raised in me all these questions about, like, I know what my commitment is in terms of welcome and grace, but what will happen if folks from camp start coming to church? Like, will my congregation welcome them? How do I communicate welcome as a pastor in a way that, I like, I don't want to re-traumatize people who are going to show up and certainly at some point experience judgment from the gathered community. How do, how do we navigate that? How do I communicate that I really do want to welcome you into the fabric of the life of our community on an ongoing basis? Like this is not just a ministry that we extend off campus somewhere else, um, but at the same time do the important work that we have to do as an institution to like be ready to welcome yeah. and get over some of those deeply ingrained patterns of, of, discomfort and judgment and condemnation that have have also been a part of the life of the church. Molly, you know, hearing that story again and I'm I'm, I'm both moved and also like all the thoughts. I mean just the ways that um it's a delicate balance that we have to sort of hold in serving the world in authentic ways. And I think sometimes we might, some of us romanticize what it means to serve who those who might be called the least of these. I mean, just, just hearing about individuals crossing the border to get HIV treatment um, and to find community. I mean, that just, that sounds so beautiful. And also it's, it, I think the reality is how hard that is that if that's an annual event, yeah. that, that, that that's happening one time a year as if they don't need care any other, you know, it's like, right. and, and so it's just these delicate tensions uh, that, that you hold um, in that space. It, so, it also gave me relationships that helped me understand just how destructive the homophobia in the church is. Mm, I mean, you can only mm. have so many conversations with someone uh, who who says to you, like, I want to belong in the church, but I know there's a point at which someone is going to say that I'm not welcome. So mm -hmm. I'm afraid to belong in the church. Or you talk to people who say, I know that 
I know that who I am is sinful. Like Mm -hmm. I, I know and believe that like, it's just heartbreaking to hear the ways that people internalize in really destructive ways, the exclusions and judgments of the church as if they're gospel and just live with that. And it has certainly made me a person who wants to proactively, explicitly, as much as I can offer reminders not only to the queer folks who are listening in and who are part of our communities, but to the rest of us as well, that this is who we are, that like what we do is welcome. And we have to be intentional about that and say it again and again and again. I remember my like, after I'd been at my, so I was at my first church for 11 years at San Diego first, they just did their first same sex wedding in the sanctuary recently, Mm. or Mm. uh, a pair of men who I knew back in my, I met my first year there. And it was just a joy to see Stephen Victor married in the beautiful sanctuary. In one of my early years there, there was a teenager who was uh, coming out to himself and to his family and to the the youth group. And in youth group, I, I was not working with youth. So I just got this from the youth leader and from him later. But in the youth group, they had talked about, like, do we think it's a problem to be gay and to be a Christian. And the group had unanimously said, we do not think that it's a problem. But this young man heard the opposite, even though he was in the room. And it like literally was like a straw poll, like everyone raised their hands. He processed it as that everyone agreed that it was a problem to be gay and to be Christian because that's the narrative that he heard and mm-hmm. the fear that he lived with on a regular basis. So even like being in the room and hearing the message like once was really insufficient, <laughs> like to counter the narratives mm. that just come at you again and again to counter the narratives of the churches accumulated over the years. Like this can't just be a like, well, we said it once we voted. And so now I'm sure everyone's really clear that, that everyone's welcome here. Uh, I think there's a much longer, deeper work that we have to take up. I feel silly telling you this, Derek. I no, no, you don't. I mean, I in some respects it's it's helpful because I get what it's like to be a person in the closet and to be afraid of affirming people. Mm, yeah. Like, yeah. Like you'd think that if you're in a closet, you you would be like, where are the affirming people? I'm not ready to come out, but I want to be close to the affirming people. No, I was afraid of the affirming people. Yeah. And oh man, to hear. And is that because like your like position and place depended on like being closeted and no one thinking too much about queerness? Oh like, yeah. No one talk about it and we'll just keep going. Oh gosh, I I definitely did not want us to have any conversations about queerness because then inevitably we, in my brain, inevitably we're going to be talking about me. And and the end of that conversation is excommunication. Um, And it just, at that time, was not worth it. So to hear that story and to hear you articulate the understanding of just how deep the self-hatred can go. Yeah. And how deep the self-aversion can go. That's actually helpful. <laughs> so no, it wasn't silly at all. That was helpful, even at this stage of, of my life. Um, yeah, yeah that's grateful. so real. 
and our system, because of the way we've been structured, asks people to do so much that's harmful to people themselves. That, like what we ask you to compartmentalize or put away or hold, you know, you can be gay, but be celibate. Like all of these things are really destructive and that accumulation of that and the sacrifices people have made to stay in the church and serve the church. Like, I feel like that's a, a something that we need a lot of institutional repentance and confession about, like what mm -hmm. we have asked of people for them to, and I think weirdly sometimes it gets cast as like queer people saying that they're entitled to church. But what my experience is that we have received the gifts and blessing and contributions and presence of queer folks in so many ways for so many years. And we've made them, we've asked them to hide, deny, believe yeah. sinful parts of themselves to participate. Like this is not about like entitlement to a right. This is like, we have abused, we have done spiritual abuse by inviting people to participate, but very conditionally and very in a like partial provisional way that requires folk to deny silence, hide mm. uh, very real parts of themselves. That's, that's, that's on all of us. That's yeah. on all of us. Molly, tell me this as a pastor, I, I know that there are some folks out there, well-meaning folks, who would have heard everything you just said and would have responded, I I didn't I didn't do that. I mean I I I didn't I didn't know what to say, but I I didn't do all that, did I? And like how do we how do we shepherd heteronormative individuals in such a way where realizing their complicity in the harm of queer folk, and we can put whoever we wanted to put in into that category, right? The harm of black folks, ableism, women, like how do we help folks who have been complicit in harm acknowledge their complicity without that also then turning onto them saying something's wrong with me because I was complicit in a thing that I didn't completely realize I was complicit in. I mean, it seems like Jesus could be helpful. I don't mean to be flip here. But <laughs> Come on. Like, yeah. At the yeah. end of the day, like we're a community of grace and forgiveness. And if we can't model that all of us are falling short of the glory of God and have things that need to change in us individually and collectively. Like if we can't do that as a church, like if we can't say, like, I have not meant to, but I recognize that I have done harm and it breaks my heart to learn the dimensions of the harm that I have perpetuated and I make that confession trusting in the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ and trusting that there'll still be a part for me to play in the church, even as one who has done wrong, done harm, gotten wrong. Like that's, I guess sort of like the core of the message we have, isn't it? Like it's yeah. okay 
it's not it's not okay in a like so don't bother getting better it's like okay in a really deep and fundamental way like we're not supposed to be perfect we're not supposed to have all that we need already we're supposed to need each other this is how community works we come to see god more clearly with and through each other and so like we just need to get better at it at like practicing confession and forgiveness i mm. think oh. let's take a quick break So Molly, um, I love to ask my guest um, where they were when uh, the traditional plan passed uh, at the special session of 2019. And so I'm gonna ask you that, but I'd, I'd love, before we get there, I'd love to hear your thoughts on how we got to what happened at 2019, which is a big question and we're obviously not gonna really cover it. But for you and your context, with your, your passion, what do you think was the, the, the markers of the road that led to what happened at the special session in 2019, specifically the passage of the traditional plan? Oof. That's a really big question. There's so many pieces that you could chart. And I'm grateful for folks like Charlie Baber, who whose graphic novel, Incompatible, really does mm -hmm. a beautiful job of laying out the history of sort of how we got the statements that we have in the Book of Discipline and how we got from there to now. Uh, so I grew up in Nebraska, which is the home of the Jimmy Treat Jimmy Creech trials, which happened mm. in like while I was in seminary, uh, which was one of those high-profile trials of a clergy person who officiated a same-gender wedding or commitment ceremony. It was before legal wedding, legal marriage. Um, the it's these moments of people doing the thing that they're called to that is out of sync with the rules that then force us to put more rules in the book, right? So in some of those early trials, mm -hmm. the only statements we had were the ugly phrases in the social principles hmm. about incompatibility. Then as more folks felt the call of the Holy Spirit to offer blessings to same gender weddings as more gay and lesbian clergy felt called to ministry and pursued that or were able to come out or chose to come out that we added in a lot more rules over those years to offer sort of clarity on these things that had been harder to prosecute. So the additions to the book of discipline were really to aid in prosecution of expulsions of gay and lesbian clergy and clergy who officiate same gender commitment ceremonies and marriages. That sort of direction of moving to 
use the discipline as a way of enforcing exclusion found sort of its natural conclusion in the traditional plan, which twists our Methodist systems of accountability in strange ways, establishing mandatory penalties for certain offenses, only the ones related to gay folks. The It's sort of the like ultimate way that you can choose to use the church to exclude. And I think that's what happened in 2019. In 2019, when the traditional plan passed, I was up in the stands. I was a reserve delegate and I was watching, standing alongside queer colleagues and beloved folk who were there witnessing the church attempting to push them out, to exclude them, to legislate the way to a better church that gets better by throwing them out, which is for me just such the counter movement to what we're called to in the gospel. I was a reserve delegate in 2016 and then to 2019. Um, I was a delegate to general conference in 2008 and 12. And in 2012, I chaired one of the legislative committees, Church and Society B, which is the one that looks at the statements and the social principles related to sexuality and abortion. I hated that leadership role. I Most uncomfortable for me was the moment when I was literally standing on stage representing the work of the legislative committee that had decided again not to change this harmful language as the church, like, rolled over people again, like continued on its way of exclusion. I did not like occupying that position of leadership while the church did wrong. And I Mm -hmm. felt I have, I've not entirely processed the variety dimensions of the, that experience for me personally of leading that legislative committee. It was, it raised a lot of questions for me about how I'm called to be a church leader. And if like chairing the committee in a way that makes people feel like they played nice with each other as they just perpetuate harm, like, is that righteous? Mm, right? mm. Like if in my leadership as chair, I made people feel like the process was in any way like fair and participatory and people weren't like cruel to each other in the process. But then ultimately what we did was cruel. Like I, I just have all these questions about whether that yeah. was better or worse than what could have just been if we would have shown the sort of cruelty with, you know, sort of more clearly in the process. Anyway, after 2012, I wasn't sure I ever would have the like stomach to be a delegate again. So I, um, said I only wanted to be a reserve delegate. And my conference has been gracious to elect me to be a reserve delegate uh, in 2016 and then again in 2020. But since we elected Cedric Bridgeforth to be a bishop, now I'm a delegate delegate again and (laughs) praying that I will have the, the stomach to participate in the institution. In a strange way though, I feel like 2019 was like helpful to the cause because what we did legislatively was so ugly and out of sync with the values we actually hold that 
it encouraged more people to be more publicly clear about standing in opposition to exclusion as the way forward for the church. So our bad legislative decisions in 2019 have helped the church get to a completely different place in 2023, where more people in more places, local churches, rural contexts, big cities, different levels of church leadership, more folk have said, like, that is not who we are. And, you know, it also, this is bad for the institution. We showed that the institution, you can win general conference and lose the church, right? Yeah. So the traditional yeah. plan passed general conference, but has not really been implemented in the U.S. Like mm -hmm. what was actually in the traditional plan has not been put into practice. Instead, conferences like your own have knowingly ordained out queer folk, commissioned mm -hmm. them as clergy in more places. The delegations that we elected to General Conference this year include more out queer folks than ever before. The church in the U.S. in particular has said, like, that does not represent us. That's not who we are. And we can't be a better church by excluding people. For me, this is like, uh, Reverend Frank Wolf is really helpful to me in framing this. He's one of our like longest out queer clergy folk in my conference. Uh, he took us back to 1 Corinthians 12, when Paul says, you can't say to another part of the body, I have no need of you. And that that's what General Conference said to our queer kin. We said, we have no need of you under the mistaken idea that the church could be more faithful by throwing people out. And it's just the wrong movement. And so, I mean, it sets up an interesting thing for us here. When I look at that U.S. politics next to UMC politics, there's this, Ooh, yeah. they're not exactly parallel, but there's this, it's sometimes helpful to me to look at uh, like bigger things that are happening in our cult culture and world, like the decline yeah, of mainline United Methodist issue and the erosion of trust in institutions is not a Methodist thing. It's certainly happening in like national politics too, are just sort of like eroding the trust of institutions. And when the institution does things like pass the traditional plan, they like trade away the legitimacy of the institution because mm -hmm. that what was actually in the traditional plan is so out of sync with how we understand ourselves. Um, so then like, why would the institution have authority? So in some ways, like I feel it multiplying a larger cultural dynamic that accelerates a change in the world. And there's days when it's like, maybe this is okay. We're gonna have to, with integrity, earn the trust of our communities again by a compelling, life consistent with the gospel like that's actually a really comfortable place to be in the church mm. it's like here's where we have the opening to demonstrate who we are by our love by yeah. our grace and forgiveness um, not because we expect that we are a powerful and legitimate institution we're only powerful because of what we sort of are practicing in the world i think it's interesting and this is a perspective. Someone's going to listen to what I'm about to say and they're going to be like, I don't know if I agree with that. It's like, you get to not agree with me. Right. But 
I think that there is, you know, I often hear this conversation about the commitment that we made to the Book of Discipline, um, the vow that we made to uphold the discipline. But I don't often hear as coupled with that, the recognition that we are regularly changing and amending and adapting and reinterpreting the Book of Discipline. So those who were ordained before 2019, did you really say yes right. to that Book of Discipline? Right? Oh my gosh. I mean, I, I, could, I could give you a list of gay clergy who were ordained before the church said anything about gay clergy. Like what happens to them? Who, which church do they belong to? Like, and, and so on the, on the same, are we, do we have to go with whatever bad decision the future church is going to make. And so it seems to me in the same way, then again, in this argument about the commitment made to the book of discipline, if the book of discipline changes in 2024, haven't you already said yes to that? Like, it, 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 I'm just, and I guess this is, again, that someone will not like the line of the road that I've just gone down, but I just think it's it's interesting that when we, when I hear conversations about covenant and commitment and, and upholding the discipline, I don't also hear the fact that our system literally has a mechanism by which we... Like Part of upholding the discipline is the continual process of amending it, like, yes, like yes. perfecting it. I'm so yes. grateful to the work of now of blessed memory, Bishop Mel Talbert, yes. whose work at articulating inclusion as an act of biblical obedience changed a lot of our framework for how we talk about inclusion in the church. He preached an ordination service in my CalPAC annual conference. I can't remember if it was in 2008 or 2012. It was just after a general conference that was disheartening to me. Mm, and he mm. preached an ordination service that called the ordination class to be ordained into the book of discipline that Christ is calling us to have. That was sort of this like, it's not the actual literal, we're not limited by the actual literal words in any given edition of the Book of Discipline, but the sort of spirit of what it represents and what it can be as we're called forward in the gospel. Like, I know that there is colonial thinking and racism and sexism knit through our institution and the ways that it shows up in our Book of Discipline. Like, that is not the thing that I'm called to serve my whole life, right? Like, that's an accepted reality of the fact that we are humans on a journey, that that's still there. And I'm like vowing to be obedient to the discipline, but like as it's becoming, not in the, you know, specific harm that it articulates. I have this soapbox I like to get on. Um, yeah. Sometimes you people in the Southeast come at, <laughs> we spoke in the West because we like ordained or we elected Karen Olivito to be an out lesbian bishop back in 2016. And folk say to me, like, why did you do that? You know, that caused us harm where we are, or that created problems for us, which I think is rich because the problem is the homophobia, right? Like the problem is not a really mm -hmm. called and gifted bishop being mm -hmm. elected and consecrated to that office. 
Um, but when I hear you, you people, come on through. When I hear you people like say that you're acting like we did that as an act of defiance against the book of discipline. And the same thing was like when Jimmy Creech ordained that lesbian couple in Omaha in the 1990s, people were like, he did it defiantly. But that's not at all my experience of what was happening. I believe that that the Western jurisdiction elected Karen to be a bishop as an act of faithful following of the Holy Spirit. Mm-hmm. And and that Jimmy Creech married that couple as an act of faithful pastoral leadership. And the fact that it was in defiance of the book of discipline was not the motivating factor. It was just a characteristic of what was uh, an obedience to the call of the Holy Spirit and the gifting of this moment and the pastoral responsibility put on us as humans. What what is obedience to scripture, to the book of discipline, to the gospel, often looks like defiance from another perspective, but it's defiance against the, I mean, I saw those things in our baptismal vows, right? Like mm. resisting evil injustice and oppression and whatever forms they present themselves. Recognizing that some of those are going to show up in our institutions. They're not like external. Mm. They're in us as individuals and they're in our church too. I think we'll pick this conversation, this part of the conversation back up in a second, but I want to move us forward a little bit. Um, you know, on the other side of General Conference 2019 is the annual conference season of 2019 that we already talked about that really, um, you. I, I think you're right that um, winning General Conference lost the church um, for those who were championing the traditional plan. Um, and then from there, you know, we've got protocol, then the pandemic, um, delayed general conference multiple times, the, the launch of the GMC, disaffiliations, all of this over the last few years. And I'm just curious what, what has been sort of the impact in your area? Um, you know, sometimes we, we we people in the south we people <laughs> all right all right sometimes we sometimes we just think that everything's all beautiful and inclusive and and chill out in the western jurisdiction um and i know y'all have just as many just as many church problems as we do so i'm not even i actually know more of the reality but i'm just curious you know we we've really felt a lot of those dynamics here the Florida conference in the Southeast. And I'm just curious, how were those events and those those moments sort of, how did they land in your space? Yeah, so I was appointed here to Westwood in 2019. So in July, uh, shortly after that general conference, when I arrived, this congregation had taped over the words United Methodist on all of our church signs as an act of protest against General Conference 2019 oh as a way my. of saying that does not represent who we are or who we mean to be. So that's like one very specific visual uh, reaction to 2019. It helps as someone committed to the connectional life of the church, it helps that that's not a unique posture of the Westwood United Methodist Church, that that's something our annual conference really seriously took on conversation about our understanding of human sexuality in like the late 90s and 
early 2000s. So just as I was arriving in this conference, Bishop Sano did a beautiful job of helping create opportunities for conversation. CalPAC likes to think that we do things like differently. This is sort of, this is how we be in the West, like in Claremont, <laughs> CalPAC, we're not into this sort of binary pro and con thing. We accept and celebrate a diversity of ways of thinking about things, which is critical because our annual conference when we get together has folks from all kinds of different language and cultural groups. So our congregations tend to be relatively segregated, but when we're together at annual conference, we represent a much greater like ethnic and language diversity than any church that I've ever been in. And so like, we have to talk about things differently. It's not just like a pro and con. It's a like, let's, let's, hear one another in a different way. And so that commitment to diversity runs really deep. It's not just about the commitment to inclusion is not only about human sexuality. It's part of this inter intersectionality is a way of like helping talk about it that I'm grateful for that language because this has been part of our lived reality for a long time is that it's it's complicated. There's economic diversities, there's language and racial differences, there's our, you know, sexual and gender diversity also. So all of these, our commitment to diversity matters for most of us because yeah, yeah. it, to some extent, in some way, all of us are sort of outside the sort of dominant traditional, uh, like model of what culture power looks like. So, mm -hmm. uh, yeah, so I guess I, I'm grateful that this is something that we've chosen over a long period of time to articulate ourselves as being in a slightly different place than the denomination as a whole. Mm -hmm. So judicial council like regularly will say that something we did at annual conference doesn't, isn't actually like can't stand, but we still did it. And it's still like, this is who we are. So we articulated that if conferences could be reconciling, we would be reconciling. And we've like petitioned to change the book of discipline, to eliminate the incompatibility clause, to like, this has been a part of the fabric of who we are for like decades now. So, uh, so it feels different to know that there is that because, you know, matters of ordination are determined by annual conference. Right. So like, when our Board of Ordained Ministry clearly articulated after 2019 that the Board of Ordained Ministry does not consider your sexuality or gender identity as a valid criteria for your ordination or not, uh, that was uh, giving voice to something that felt like it had been our practice for a while. And it's helpful to say it out loud, but it's not like a shocking thing. It's like, that's who we've determined to be, how we belong together. So mm -hmm. it helps that that's a that it helps that we did that work ahead of time. Yeah, yeah. Which is maybe my like encouragement to people right, like right now is that it's helpful to do work now so that we're not just reacting to whatever happens in next, when is it, April, May? Yeah, uh, yeah. So like if, if you want to start the conversation with less anxiety, like maybe start it now, like figure out where it fits into the, your lay column in the newsletter or your sermons that are you're planning for coming up, like figure out how and when you can help give voice to things in a way that gets us ready. So it's not a, so less Ooh, is up for grabs when that's going to take courage for sure. Down, right. I mean, but really like either it matters or why are we even doing this? So are you, 
I think what you're saying to me is that because you all did all that pre-work, the, the subsequent events of the last few years probably been felt in some specific ways, but by and large, CalPAC is who CalPAC is. And so the integrity- yeah, that's my, I mean, that's my perception from the safety of a like cisgendered, I don't identify as queer leader in the church. Mm -hmm. uh, I'm grateful that it has precipitated the board over ministry making a clear statement so that it's not just like kind of understood or we think it's that way. Uh, but I think it, it gives a sense of, so like I can say to my congregation that we can still belong in this connection and know that our connection to the annual conference is never going to require us persecuting and prosecuting queer clergy. Like, CalPAC's just not going to do that. Like that's not ever going to be the thing that we take up because we've made that decision together that that's not, that that's out of sync with who we are and our identity. So it's, it's easier given that that work has already been done. Have y'all been impacted by uh, disaffiliations uh, in a significant way? We have a special called annual conference coming up this weekend to handle a handful of those. Mm -hmm. Because our annual conference set the rules for disaffiliation uh, and included that disaffiliating churches have to pay 50% of their property value, that makes it nearly impossible for most congregations. Our property value is really high out here, which is different from many parts of the country where... Um, you know, a closed church might be a liability out here. The property is all worth a lot of money. So that changes a lot of dynamics. Yeah. But I think also the way the character of our conference, our appreciation and commitment to honoring diversities and being like trying to be inclusive, I think it, it matters too. So that there's, you know, even people that are sort of uncomfortable still about you know, queer clergy have a sort of trust in the lived values of our conference that allows us to hang together. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So one question I often ask my guests is what do you think General Conference 24 should be about? I have a feeling that one of the things that you think it should be about, and correct me if I'm wrong though, but one of the things that I, I have a feeling you think General Conference should be about is removing harmful language from the Book of Discipline. Um, yeah, I think, I think it's so critical. Yeah. I, I, these like priorities that I see coming to General Conference, and I don't see these alone, I see those in conversation with a lot of other people, mm -hmm. the priorities of passing some kind of new regionalized church structure uh, adopting our revised social principles and removing this harmful language. I see all of them as three different ways of giving our church a sort of reset that is on the other side of the way we have been, maybe this is too strong of language, but not, not very much. We've been held hostage by folk in the church who have used our discomfort and disagreement about human sexuality as a way to hold the church captive for decades. I mean, we tried to regionalize our structure 
in 2012 and it did not pass ratification because of fear that it was a secret way of making the church more inclusive of LGBTQ folks. Like I like, I'll never forget those first days at general conference in 2016 when we like spent way too long arguing about the rules, but it wasn't really about the rules. It was like, how are we approving the rules that we're going to operate under? And what will it make more or less likely in terms of removing this harmful anti-LGBTQ language? Like Mm. that question has prevented us from making like other changes in our organization that has held us captive to a colonial way of being the church that's from a like past era when we were a predominantly U.S. church with some churches elsewhere in the world, we've been like held back from changing to match our reality. Our social principles similarly are constructed in this very like U.S. centric worldview. There's statements on social issues, but they have resonance around the world because Methodists everywhere are passionate about living our values in the world about this social holiness. And so we hold on to that piece of our tradition, but we like cringe a little that they're worded in this way that's so like US dominant. So regionalizing now so that there is a structure that actually reflects our reality and articulating a new social principles that speaks to our worldwide church reality. Like these just give us sort of a reset that allows us to not be held, restricted, like kept hostage by a fight from years past that's it's frankly like it's literally embarrassing because mm. we're fighting over terminology that we don't even use anymore right like it's mm-hmm. what the church said from the floor in 1972 the practice of homosexuality like that's just a weird phrase that doesn't even like that's not how we talk about queer folks in the world today it doesn't mm-hmm. but we're like stuck fighting about that as a binary issue it's either in there or it exactly as is or like we have not been willing to change it at all even like these weak compromise proposals that are like let's just say that we're not of one mind on this like all those have been seen as across whatever line is in the sand that says we cannot touch that phrase Mm -hmm. we have Mm -hmm. to get on the other side of that because it's preventing us from articulating our faith structuring ordering our church in a way that's functional uh, for the future. And alongside that, I think we're going to have to say less about a lot of things in order to trust the regions to do their work. But the first thing that's critical that we say less about is human sexuality, because what we have said has been a block to faithful ministry and has done harm. And we're just like, we're taking that out to create space to pass on trust in the institution, right? So we're not saying like, you're gay, you get to be ordained, right? You still have to like, there's a process where a local church recommends you and a district committee interviews you and then an annual conference decides who's to be ordained. Like it's returning trust back to that structure and saying, okay, annual conferences have the authority and trust to make these decisions. And it's saying to clergy, like you get to officiate at weddings and you have the responsibility and choice authority to decide whose wedding you're going to officiate or not. And we're not bound to officiate anyone's wedding. Uh, It like restores that trust back. It's just so critical. I think we sometimes, uh, 
we institutional folks, we folks who like play well at general church levels, mm -hmm. we think about this as an institutional issue because we're aware that General Conference 2019 like won the vote for the traditional plan and lost to the church. And we're aware that we want to hold this institution together. And so that removing language is important for holding this institution together. And we're aware that it's harder and harder to bring young people into the church when we hold these values that are so out of sync with our experience of the Holy Spirit and the love of God. So we institutional folks sometimes frame it as like, we're going to lose the church. But for me, this isn't primarily an issue about saving the institution. It's about, is the, the question is, is the institution going to use its authority to continue to perpetuate, to teach a twisted view of the gospel that suggests that some people are outside of the realm of God's love, that some people can't be used by the Holy Spirit to be called into ministry or their relationships can't be like, we don't have the power to withhold the Holy Spirit's blessing from marriages or from people's call to ministry. All we have is the power to say whether they have a place in our institution or is our institution going to use its power to deny and exclude those folk who God is clearly equipping, calling, blessing. Like, that's what's before us. It's not so it matters to me that the institution continues because I believe that the institution has a capacity to do good and to participate in what God is doing in our midst. But the critical piece is that it's that it's not about the institution. It's about we're communicating a gospel that is twisted, false, and heretical. That's like saying there's some people outside of the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Like that's that's not who we are. And so removal of the language is critical because we're what's at stake is communicating to a next generation of Christians that there are some people outside of the love of God. Like we, that that's, we just can't do that. Like that's problematic for the core of our understanding, my understanding of the gospel. So the, the call to remove that is like one step toward creating space for God to use the church and you know, there's more work to do, right? Like there's yeah, yeah, yeah. a journey ahead, but it's critical that we like stop excluding and doing harm as a core part of our identity. I'm, I'm gonna do what I did in the beginning where I'm gonna, I'm gonna, but I'm gonna reverse it. I'm gonna go back to the beginning on something and I, I'm just, I'm always in awe of your passion and the way that passion communicates. Um, did you know that that was in you hmm. when you were in the rural church in in East Nebraska, East <laughs> Nebraska? Did you, did you, did you, and I, I mean, this is so out of order. It really is. But, but I, I just, I'm, I'm thinking about the person who has grown up into Reverend Molly Vetter. And I'm, I'm just wondering, like, did you see, did you see you back then? I think I didn't see exactly what I was going to become, but mm -hmm. I like to think that I have, that all of this journey in my life has been 
with a sort of that has had in it a sort of integrity that it's not none of it is out of sync with anything else like once you come to accept the good news of Jesus Christ and to believe in your own belonging and see the image of God in yourself and your neighbor, then you start seeing it in every neighbor. And it just keeps like asking us to take one step further and recognize what God is doing. And none of it's felt like I had to make a 180 or sidestep. I feel like all of those versions of me, all of those moments in me would that they have a consistency about them. I don't know that I exactly knew where it was, but I mean, isn't isn't that the gospel? Like we jump on with this, we accept this love of God. And then we're like, Oh wait, now you want me to do what? And you've put me in community with who, and I'm supposed to grow how, like, this is just how it always works is that you just keep seeing more connections between the world around us and the call of our faith to compassion and love and justice. And it you, you just keep seeing it everywhere and it keeps sort of expanding how we do things, but it's, but it's all like knit of the same cloth. Wow. Molly, do you have hope for the United Methodist church? I, so I'm a, an Enneagram seven. Uh-huh. And I, always have hope in everything. Like I'm the person, I'm the friend you call when you're like, everything's gone to crap. And I'm like, on the other hand, like Mm -hmm. there's Mm -hmm. another way we could look at this. Uh, I feel like we spend the world that I live in. People spend a lot of time and energy agonizing about how we're not what we once were. And I feel like, the generations and leadership ahead of me also like saw the church at a time of institutional and cultural power and the sort of that shadow looming over us and our awareness of how we're in a different place now has been like a, an albatross that we carry or like a constant awareness of how we're not what we once were. And we see the ways that the institution is broken and, You know, it's one thing if we were like always sort of on the side of getting better, right? Like we used Mm -hmm. to be really racist, but now we understand and we've gotten better. We used to be kind of homophobic, but now we're gotten better. But like we sort of got worse in our polity. Living with all of that. I feel like this, this, the place where I find hope is in looking out at the church in this congregation that I serve in everyone I've ever been a part of. There are genuine people of real lived relationships that are living differently because of the gospel and trying to love their neighbor. And there are real connections that exist amongst our congregations across our denomination. And all that is so powerful and valuable, not Mm -hmm. because of what it like used to be, but because of like what is now. And I certainly believe that I have the biggest I have the like most power to change the world for the sake of love and justice through this denomination because we have so much that's real. It's not yeah. fake or imagined. It's local church communities where people love each other and are practicing learning what that means. And mm-hmm. now it's they're like kids and grandkids who are identifying as queer and they're figuring out how to 
like name and describe a consistency in the faith that they hold that includes these precious and beloved people. Like that gives me great hope because it's it's real, it's not theoretical, it's practiced, it's lived in so many contexts and places. And if we can help clear out some of the institutionalized exclusion and homophobia to like unleash the power of the United Methodist Church to be a part of the work of moving our society and culture forward toward uh, love and acceptance and flourishing of life for people. Mm. Like think what could be possible. Like, so I guess my hope is not, I hope that we'll, we'll be what we once were, but I hope that we'll use what we have for something that Jesus would be really proud of. Molly Vetter, I am just in awe of the passion that you bring to so many things, um, but especially just um, your passion and care for those who might be called the least of these. And 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 I include the earth into that as well. I am I am inspired by your leadership and your proclamation of the gospel. Thank you, Derek. I'm humbled by that and grateful. Oh, thanks for being on the podcast. You're so welcome. We hope you enjoyed the episode. Bar of the Conference is produced by the team at Wesley's Revival, a ministry of Studio Wesley. Subscribe to this show on Apple, Spotify, Amazon, or Google platforms so you don't miss a single episode. Thanks for joining us and see you next time.